everybody, I'm the drunk phytologist, Dr. Rochelle Lapham, aka Phyto or DP, and I use the pronoun she, her. And I'm Ethan Lapham, uh, also known as Talkman363, and I use pronouns uh, he, him. And this is Natural 20. <laughs> Hey everyone! Today we're going to be talking about the Rust Monster. Yes, finishing up the what do we get? The Trinity, the, 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 the trilogy of the soft trilogy plastic of, horrors. Trilogy of soft plastic horrors. Remind everyone what soft plastic horrors were again. So in the uh, in, in the long long ago before times, yes, um, in the early days of D and D, they were working to come up with monsters, and you know. Pull from the classics, pull from myths and things like that. But one of the the, the new options was the, the dollar store Hong Kong toy. This is like, take your average McDonald's plastic toy and go down about four steps. Wow. I mean, this is Generous. The, the bargain Broken basement. Base. Mm-hmm. We're not sure what these were supposed to represent. We are not sure that they have ever existed in any form of creation in any part of the multiverse, it, like the, we don't know what these things are. Um, if you get a chance, uh, you can look them up. Art and Arcana has a, a page that kind of lays yes, out. It's our the, favorite book. <laughs> the uh, you know the owl bear and the bullet and the rust monster. You can look them up online. No, I want Nobody you to knows tell. What these things are. I want you to tell our listeners how you described the rust monster in that book. Oh yeah, specifically. Yes, um, specifically. So yeah, this again, these are, these are these like soft plastic. They are a lurid set of colors that you know these colors are not found in nature <laughs> and the rust monster is probably the worst offender like the other two you could kind of be like that might have been some kind of bad approximation of a dinosaur mm-hmm. made from some kind of child's refrigerator art yes the rust monster it seems like the leftover parts mold bin yeah because it's here's a paddle tail mm-hmm. and a roach face with frog legs, and I believe I described it as a lumpy pineapple hand grenade Made. for a body. <laughs> and then just paint some favorite. eyes on the front of it. And it's also bright orange for reasons. Now, yes, certainly once it became this iconic D&D creature, that color got a little bit more explanation. But why this bright orange amalgam of body parts. Like, this is forensicist's first day on the job. Like, forensics comes out to a bomb scene and says, that part over there with the part under the truck and the part, like, up on that hot dog stand umbrella. And then, um, yeah, this roach was here. (laughs) This is an interesting... This is an interesting place that this explosion happened. Listen, I don't know. And that's, I mean, but that's exactly it. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, we've combined these parts into this horrific Frankenstein's plastic monster. Frankenstein's plastic monster. There we go. That's our new, is that our band name for today? That could be the band name today. Frankenstein's plastic monster. That one's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it is the most convoluted, approximate creature. Mm-hmm. Again, the owlbear, the bullet, you can kind of see where they were going. The parts right. fit together. This thing is like the five-year-old got in the Lego bin at the back of an abandoned Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. Well, so how do... So let's... <laughs> gosh dang it. So let's start with... 
what is the rust monster here? We'll go, we'll, we'll go into, besides being a pineapple hand grenade, um, how, how is it currently? What does it look like? Give me the deets. So, it has been more or less unchanged through most versions. It's kind of got some upgrades over time. The, mm-hmm. the fidelity of the artwork has certainly improved yeah. from those early pencil drawings. And we've moved on from generic straight antennae and sort of this just lumpy turtle shell, you know, cobbled together mess into a little bit more cohesive design. It's, it's got more armor. It's got a little bit more of a, a specific coherent experience. And, and it's remained pretty much the same from what I can find from at least third edition up through the modern day. It's got sort of feathery antenna, big chitinous plates, four legs, this long tail with sort of a paddle on the back end, and, you know, the, the mandibles and a lot of teeth. Um, which is sort of weird for an insectoid creature to have teeth. So we're, but... we're going to get into this later. So before we get into the biology, I'm going to give a disclaimer to everybody. If you don't like bugs and you don't like teeth being in places where teeth shouldn't be, you might want to skip this episode or when we get into the biology, just, just you know, not be there. <laughs> For that bit, um, this is going to be this episode's going to have a lot more science in it, a little bit, and a little less D and D, just because we got a lot to work with right here. So buckle in. Um, but we'll give you the D and D first. So. But yeah, we've we've changed from kind of the highlighter orange to a much more appropriately rust-colored exterior in mm-hmm. all of the art, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, something that is eating iron-rich food. So like the flamingo, like the horrifying H.R. Geiger flamingo that it is. <laughs> There's another great band name. H.R. Geiger, Geiger flamingo. flamingo. <laughs> it's presumably getting a lot of its color from what it eats. Mm-hmm. And so it is a rust colored, you know, underground burrowing creature. Did we talk about the feathery antennae yet? I did mention that, yeah. And, and, and I think that mm-hmm. That specific shape is probably going to come into play, and, and that is the the main weapon of the rust monster. Its whole goal is to rapidly deteriorate metal objects. It prefers things made of iron and iron-adjacent things, steel, mm-hmm. mithril, but it will eat other metals. You know, It'll eat your coins if there's nothing else available. And it tries to corrode them, oxidize them, rust them, down into edible food. It eats rust, specifically. Right. So these feathery antennae are used to, like, offensively create a a rusty object, but it also will rust objects that attack it. So if you hit it with a metal sword, it will begin to rust the sword. Mm -hmm. But the main point is those those front antennae are what's really going to do the most damage. All right. So let me go ahead and get into the stats. This comes from the Monster Manual for the 5th edition D&D. So this is a medium monstrosity. So this is like what we're saying, the size of a pony. Yeah, I think they call out five foot long by three foot high in, in one of the editions. Right. And so, as we said, it's sort of bug-like. The only difference is it has four legs instead of six. But we're going to get into that a little bit later on the science end of stuff. Armor class of 14. 
Um, hit points, 27. It's got a speed of 40 feet. And so one of the things that it works on is iron scent. It can pinpoint by scent any location of ferrous metal within 30 feet of it. So ferrous is iron and specifically an iron cation. So the idea is, is if an iron molecule has a plus two charge, right? It's positively charged, which means it's lacking two electrons, then it is going to be ferrous, right? And that's what we get our rust, ferrous oxide, is where iron has oxidized and now instead of being black, it is turned to rust colored, red colored. Ferric, which you may hear a little bit, is an iron molecule that has a plus three charge, right? So it's missing three electrons. And so we're not going to get into that a little bit as much, but there may be a little bit of chemistry <laughs> in this um, episode. So hopefully we won't lose anybody too much. So simple term, ferrous contains iron. Yep, ferrous contains iron. So anytime you see like ferrous, right, we're specifically talking about sort of the rust form of iron, okay? And so... And that's a downgrade. In, in previous, previous editions, it was up to 90 feet. 90 feet, nice. So this is within 30 so rust metal, any non-magical weapon made of metal that hits the, the rust monster corrodes. After dealing damage, the weapon takes a permanent and cumulative minus one penalty to damage rolls. Mm -hmm. And the penalty drops to minus five. If the penalty gets all the way to minus five, the weapon is destroyed. Non-magical ammunition made of metal that hits the rust monster is destroyed after dealing damage. Fourth edition, they made it where basically at the end of combat, those effects would go away. Fifth edition, other editions, no. It is it's a like, permanent, ongoing, like it is just, it's damaged. And mm -hmm. you either have to replace it or fix it. So, you've lost your weapon. It is no good. They can bite. They have a plus one to hit within five feet, one target. And only about one D8 plus one piercing damage. So, this isn't their, they generally are not going to be after an adventurer. They want your stuff. Yeah, they bite when cornered. And they, they call that out. Like, they are not aggressive they are aggressive feeders. They will come for you if they smell the iron yep. on you. They are after the iron. They could care less about you. In fact, you have a chance of getting away if you can drop an easy meal. So, for example, they talk about them being underground scavengers, roam subterranean passages in search of ferrous metals, such as iron, steel, adamantine, or mithril, which is a silver steel, to consume. Ignore creatures not carrying those metals, but become aggressive towards those bearing steel weapons and armor. Mm -hmm. Rust monster can smell its food at a distance, immediately dashing towards the scents to corrode and consume the object. Rust monster doesn't care if the rust it consumes comes from a spike or a sword. That you can distract them, right? Yep. As we said, by dropping ferrous, you know, the caltrops or ball bearings or you know other small mundane metal items. Mm -hmm. Those things that always just sit in your inventory and you forget you have after session two, yeah, drop that. That's perfect to evade a rust monster. And they're low challenge in 5th edition. They're only a, a challenge rating of one half. Yes. I mean, they are meant to be an early deterrent, an early problem, but any higher level adventurer is going to take them out in maybe one hit, or they're going to use magic against them, they're going to stay at range. Mm -hmm. And they're avoidable. I mean, they're fairly quick, 40 feet of speed. You know, if you're just a standard adventurer, they're going to run you down. Yep. But they're after their food. So drop food if it's an a, a item you don't want, if it's a small, 
metal, you know, a bag of ball bearings. Mm -hmm. They'll go after that and leave you alone. They just want food. Right. These are just a wild animal. Well, and everybody knows that during character creation, you grab a bunch of stuff that's supposed to be from your background, and then you forget all about it until maybe the end of the campaign, or you never use it. There's a candle holder in an explorer's pack or something. Drop that. Who cares? You're you're never going to use it. There's a grappling hook. You can buy 50 of them in every town. This is true. Drop it. I mean, you're going to get away. That's the whole point. These things are, they are driven purely I have a set instinct. of silverware that I, you know, grabbed from this one rich dude's house at this Chuck one point because I didn't like him. Um, so let's get into the antennae because this is one of the most unique things about them. So they corrode non-magical ferrous metal object within five feet of it. So that's big, long antennae. If the object isn't being worn or carried, the touch destroys a one-foot cube of it. If the object's being worn or carried by a creature, the creature can make a DC deck saving throw to avoid the rust monster's touch. If the object touches either metal armor or metal metal shield being worn or carried, it takes permanent damage. And so this is the cumulative penalty. So it decreases the AC that it offers. Your armor is being less protective. Armor reduced to an AC of 10 over shield then drops to a plus zero bonus so and, from is, it's desor- plus and two is destroyed. Yes. Down, you know, basically, a shield takes two hits, it's gone. And if the object touched is a held metal weapon, it rusts as described in the rust metal trait. So then there's sort of a, you know, other modifiers and stuff that you can find in the DMG. But yeah, so these things are, you know, a, a burrowing creature. You're going to find them underground, places that are, you know, out of the light, uh, just type of, yeah, they do have dark vision out to 60 feet, so mm-hmm. you know, they can see you coming. And again, if you're close enough that they can smell the metal, they may come after you. But with a dark vision out to 60 feet, if, I would assume that like most wild animals, if you're big enough to seem like a threat, they'll probably leave you alone. Probably. You know, they're, they're not a super high intelligence creature, I don't nope. think. You know, they don't they're... have any languages or anything. Yeah, intelligence they of an... two. I mean, yep, this is a Intelligence of animal. two. This is a wild animal. But Back a wisdom of 13. Right. They've got a decent perception. They have, you know, the instinct to stay away from danger. They want to live to continue to eat and wander around the underground in search of their next meal. You know, this is not a vicious land predator like we we saw with either the bullet or the owlbear. Nope. So this talks about them being subterranean wanderers. They're rarely found in large numbers and preferring to hunt alone or in small groups. And so we will talk about this a little bit later, too, on the biology. Meander along tunnels, moving from cave to cave in tireless search for ferrous metals to consume. Wanderings often bring them in contact with other underdark denizens. And so these are your... Drow, Drow, your 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 Durgar, your Umber Hulk. And find them harmless or unappetizing. Thus, rust monsters may be found in close proximity to other subterranean monsters. If they are well-treated and well-fed, they could become friendly companions or pets. So finally, your first pet monster. There you go. Here's your pet monster. We gave it to you. Just don't get metal near it. It Nope. It's going to be very... Well, I mean, feed it metal, but, you know, only metal you don't want. But, I mean, it brings up an interesting point of, you know, that they're unappetizing. Presumably, if anything is, you know, if most humanoid creatures in D&D are like the humanoids we all know and love, they Mm -hmm. have iron in their blood. Presumably, these things just taste like blood. Probably. So, you know, or or rust. I mean, you know. (laughs) Well, and they're chitinous, right? So they have, so they're talking about. It's a big rusty bug. It's a big rusty bug. Okay, so now. Are we ready to get into the biology, folks? I prepare, think we're ready. Prepare, prepare yourselves. All right, because we're we're going we're going to Bugtown. We are going on the train to Bugtown. We're going on the train to Biology Town. We're going on the train to Biology Town. So, rust monster. By body plan, 
It looks a lot like a Katie did. So Katie did, you should look these up. One, I think they're adorable, but that's just me. They are a relative of grasshoppers, so they have the big sort of back legs, spring-loaded legs, kind of like crickets, kind of like grasshoppers, kind of like locusts. Fleas. Fleas. Aphids. Aphids. Leafhoppers. Leafhoppers. You name it. And so they... A rust monster only has four legs. So they have the two big back legs and the one front leg. And the one set of front legs. So normally insects have six. So we were talking earlier that there's a possibility that either the middle set of legs got lost over evolutionary time when you were a rust monster and was not used. Or they have this big long tail. Which most... terrestrial bugs don't have no normally you would get into anything with a big long tail like that is either a flying insect because it's used like a dragonfly because it's used for balance or you're an arachnid and you're like a scorpion so you're an arthropod you're an arthropod right so arthropods have eight legs and so well, arachnids have eight legs. Uh, arthropods uh, have ten arthropods have ten sorry yeah you're correct so that would be including ticks and other stuff like that there are other arachnids also called um, vinegaroons or whip scorpions, which have long whip-like tails. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are not a true sort of arachnid. They're kind of spider-adjacent, bug-adjacent. We were thinking that maybe one of the sets of legs on the rust monster fused together to make the tail. And why do you think we need the tail? You told me this theory earlier. So, yeah, this goes back to, I mean, it's, it's an underground-dwelling creature. You know, it, it's not going to run into adventurers every day with iron tools, you know, and with, with weapons and armor. And, you know, this is a, uh, an adventuring party is a feast. Yes. Right, this is a, the greatest this day is why in the life of scur- the rust monster. This is why they're going to scurry up to you like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And really bound up to you. You know, those <gasps> back legs are long, they're thick, they're powerful. And I think there's even boing, a, boing. sort of a, a leaping, I think back to the speed of 40 feet. Like This right. is a fast creature when it wants to move. Right. And so, you know, you look at this thing and you, and you say, okay, yeah, what is this thing going to be doing underground when it's not dealing with adventuring parties? And the thing that makes the most sense is it is burrowing around trying to find metal. Mm-hmm. Again, it's looking for food. It's looking for large iron deposits when it can get them. And in several editions, they call out that, yes, iron and ferrous metals are its favorite food. You know, much like the halfling is the bullet's favorite food. Right. But, you know, it'll eat what it can get. And so in the case of, you know, a, a rust monster, it may be getting things like copper or, or other you know, metals, underground, gold, silver. It's looking for iron, but it's going to run into other things. And So d- so it has to burrow. It has to dig. So wasn't there a, an addition where they said that a rust monster, if it was, had a primarily copper diet? So, yeah, that was somebody's theory, and I like the theory, right? And sort of the, back mm-hmm. to the flamingo aspect, right? You know, flamingos are pink because the brine shrimp that they eat have a pink salt to them, and it changes their plumage. Flamingos that don't have that type of diet will be more gray in color. So a rust monster may well be rust-colored because it eats a lot of iron rust. The same thing goes for salmon as well. Right. Mm -hmm. But other metals oxidize other colors. The reason the Statue of Liberty is green is that it is coated in copper and that it's verdigris. So there may well be rust monsters out there that are a blue-green, verdigris-colored rust monster. Why not? You know, if your environment is... If this is a dwarven enclave known for their copper mine 
they might not be, you know, they're going to be worried about a rust monster, not just because it's going to eat their tools, but because it's been eating all their copper that they're making their money on. And this is back to your burrowing. Hmm? Right. And so, yeah, with, with your burrowing, you know, they've got to have a natural source of food. Again, there's not an adventuring party coming by every day, and unless it's a crocodile that eats once a month, it needs to eat more frequently than when adventurers or, or drow or whoever come by. And likely it does, and we'll go into that in a minute. But So the idea would be, you know, if you're going to burrow, having six legs may not really be an advantage because of the fact that you know your front legs are going to be doing a lot of the digging, and maybe you could use middle legs to kind of push back, and then you still have to push back further with the back legs. So the idea would be as if the back legs are always just sort of pushing loose material that you've burrowed out of the way back up the tunnel. If those legs become longer and longer and become more and more specialized towards pushing, you know, broader feet, eventually they may just fuse into a tail to just be able to completely paddle. And it is a wide shovel-like, paddle-like tail. The end of that tail is this big triangular thing. That would be great for scooping and shoving material out. So you dig with the front legs, move it behind you with your back set of legs, and now push with this new tail design. Right, and it just sort of sweep back and forth. Right. So you could very easily be able to push through. And we wanted to talk about that. That, and it talks about in some of the monster manuals as well of looking at different mineral deposits and those sorts of things. And so now the question is. Now we're getting into a little bit more of it with these antennae. So the antennae allow them to rust objects. Yeah, this is their their, their main offensive capability. capability. Their main way to eat. Now, if you're wanting to rust something, you have to go through a process called oxidation. Okay? And this is where oxygen molecules are reacting with whatever your metal is. Now, we went ahead and looked up some sort of chemistry, right? And we argued about this for a while on... Yeah, we asked the question because the thing is, is yes, oxidation occurs naturally. Yes. You know, you leave anything uncoated, untreated iron outside will rust. Right. As oxygen comes in contact with it, it will slowly rust. But, but it is a slow is, process. Yes. How do you make this fast? So you would need what we call a strong oxidizing agent. And so our theory is that the antennae are actually full of dilute sulfuric acid. Now, the reason for this is that there are several examples in biology, including with insects, where acids and different types of acids are used for chemical defenses. Mm -hmm. So those whip scorpions I told you about earlier, they use acetic acid, which is vinegar, as a chemical defense. When we talk about ants, there are certain ants which use formic acid, where there's two different chambers at the bottom of their abdomens that will be releasing two different chemicals, which will spray out formic acid, which is very, very hot and like corrosive. Like two-part epoxy. Yep. Like two-part toothpaste. It's Evil toothpaste. Evil toothpaste, yes. Like the stuff that burns. Um, so in this case, what we were looking at, and there we had seen some theories on talking about um, hydrogen peroxide is an oxidizing agent. That's present in all living things. It's actually a type of signaling molecule, right, that occurs, or what we have with free oxygen radicals. This is a lot of really complicated biochemistry that we're not quite gonna go into. But let's say sulfuric acid exists in certain types of plants as well. Mm -hmm. If any of you have had the unfortunate experience of coming across stinging nettles, 
And if you're like me and you decided to weed your garden and you didn't realize what they were and you didn't have gloves on. Or even if you did, if they're thin gloves. Thin gloves. What happens is that these plants have formed... Um, so most plants are covered with tiny little hairs called trichomes, which help kind of keep bacteria, industrious, and other things off. It's a level of defense, kind of like the hair on your arms are or your skin. Now, some plants have turned these trichomes into specialized tiny little needles. And those little needles at the base of them are full of sulfuric acid. So what happens is when you grab said plant, <laughs> These tiny little needles <laughs> go into your hand and release sulfuric acid. And it is... It's minute quantities, but it But it is burns. so painful. It burns for like a couple days. Days. Until this is a been... plant that does not want to be touched. Yes. And so our thought was, is if you have sulfuric acid, which can be in different chambers, and there is some sort of evidence for this in biology. I mean, our stomach acid is very, very, very strong acid. Right. Now that is sort of chlorine-based, but Right, but still. it's contained within your body. Mm -hmm. It is not harmful. Nope. You, you have a specially designed organ to you know, handle heavy doses of acid. acid. That is its whole purpose. So the same with a rust monster, the same with ants that spray formic acid, the same with you know, venomous creatures like snakes and spiders. Mm -hmm. They aren't hurt by their own venom because it's not it's just running loose in their body. They nope. have a specialized place for it. Well, the rust monster's antennae are in kind of a weird spot. And yes, part of it probably goes back to our horrifying dime store monsters. Right. But the antennae are actually below their eyes, kind of on the jawline, mm -hmm. which... Typically, antennae are on the top of the head, just right. from the organization of most so, insects. So being in the jawline, is, it's a feeding mechanism, right. much like a venomous snake. So our thought is there is some sort of acid sac at the base of the antennae, in the jaw. Mm -hmm. And that when they whip the antennae forward, much like a jellyfish's stinging cells or the stinging nettles we talked about earlier, they have specialized tiny, tiny tubules and they are forcing that acid that they produce up into the antennae, and it's coming out like a mist. And the reason we said mist is because we're wanting to corrode this very, very fast. And sulfuric acid only acts as an oxidizing agent when it's mixed with oxygen from the air. There's some oxygen dissolved in it if sulfuric acid is dissolved in water. So it actually works better as an oxidizing agent or rusting agent if it's dilute rather than it's concentrated. So how do you get more oxygen into something? Surface area. Surface yeah. area, surface area, surface area. It's so the same way that you aerate red wine mm -hmm. and run it through an aerator as it's meant to come out in dropules. It's the same reason you mist plants that don't like to be heavily watered. It's the same reason that you use a mist, a spray bottle in a mist configuration when you're cleaning a window. You're looking for maximum surface area with minimum output. And so the best way to do that, have these big, long, feathery fronds. antennae, fronds basically, that are releasing little tiny droplets of sulfuric acid. And so basically they would coat their own antennae in this mist and wipe it on things. Yep. And so this dilute sulfuric acid would rapidly oxidize metal that it came in contact with, much more rapidly than if you were just to dunk it in a vat of it. Because again, you have a very high surface area and it's thin, so it evaporates and oxidizes quickly. 
And this mirrors a lot of you know biological creatures. It's the same way you know jellyfish work is that these long tendrils have these stinging cells. They come in contact and they inject with the stinging you know, neurological so compounds. It's usually that when jellyfish hunt and other uh, and other sort of types of sea creatures that have these types of cells, is that it's not that you get stung by one cell and it kills you. It's that you get stung by thousands of these at once and it kills you. And these are called pneumatocysts, mm-hmm. is the technical term. And there are even creatures in the sea, which are tiny little sea slugs called nudibrachs, if anyone follows me on Twitter, they know I'm obsessed with these guys, is that they will eat different types of poisonous um, sea creatures and things that have pneumatocysts and will incorporate those pneumatocysts in their own bodies as a way to defend themselves against predators. And so this is a reoccurring theme that you see a lot. Um, if you ever look up a type of a very bizarre creature called a Portuguese man of war. Mm-hmm. So that creature looks, it is a jellyfish adjacent, although it is technically a community creature. It is made of several different types of creature which interact with each other and live in a colony. And it is also full of these stinging pneumatocyst type cells. So you want to avoid them as much as possible. And so what we're thinking is that the rust monster uses something similar. Right. And so the idea being, and, and, and the other thing is, is that being a burrowing creature, they are after, you know, all sorts of metals, all sorts of minerals. And that amongst abundant underground minerals includes things like sulfur which is obviously required for sulfuric acid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you need a hydrogen source, you need sulfur, you need up. oxygen. Oxygen and hydrogen are everywhere. Uh, they are heavily abundant in any world we conceive of. And so having then an abundant source of sulfur available to be eaten to produce that sulfuric acid, and you probably just be eating it on the way to your iron node um, or your, your you know, ore vein, if you're coming across it anyway, you're either having to chuck it out of the way constantly or, you know, you're going to have to ingest some of it. And so having that as a natural, you know, mineral that you take in, and sulfur is a part of most biological creatures. You know, we all have sulfur, you know, even human beings have a certain amount of sulfur in their system. You know, we get it through, you know, eating our food. Well, if your whole diet was just rust you're not going to have the types of minerals you need for basic biological processes. So they're going to have to eat other things. And it's a perfect thing to then eat that sulfur, ingest it, and use it in the dissolving of more food. It is just a weapon that you are producing or a defense or, you know, it may even be used in their burrowing action. Sulfuric acid isn't just good against metal. It's good against basically everything. It actually, so one of the reasons that um, acid rain, right, which is extra sulfates in rain, dissolve stone and limestone is for that very reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) is so you breaking down the calcium carbonate breaking down the calcium carbonate so this is the different um calciums and other parts of the minerals that are made up in there so this is already built in you have a built-in wa- you have a built-in rock dissolving mechanism. Yeah, so you're going to soften the rock in front of you and it also is also useful for your favorite food. Yep. And, you know, so you're going to you eat all this and then the thing is is it's, of course, you know, for most things their uptake is not necessarily this metal rich just in general. But you're going to run into things that will survive on these types of diets. 
And it brings up the interesting point. You know, we've had this discussion earlier. Is it's yes, it's eating metal, but is this an underground cow? Yes. Right. So so cows. You know, we all know cows. They eat grass and they wander around in fields. And they're mostly docile, but you know, in the right conditions, they will run after you know something delicious if they're interested in it. They also like music. This is true. Um, I don't know if rust monsters like music, and I don't know how many bards would want to test the theory. Um, but they're more than welcome to try. I don't know. Anyone can look up on YouTube and see somebody playing trombone or basically anything with accordion, a, a accordion singing. singing alpine and, horn. Yep, and alpine horns. And cows are just going to come and hang out because apparently they find it fascinating. <laughs> but in their diet, you know, they are eating grass. But the thing is, most of their nutrition does not come from the grass itself. No. Nope. It comes from bacteria that live in their gut that break down the grass into more useful things. So could the rust monster be eating all this metal and its sulfur and, you know, minerals in order to feed some type of bacteria in its gut to then produce the actual energy that it needs? Because a fast-moving creature needs energy and not a small amount. No, and... Honestly, this is a very niche diet, right? Yeah. If we want to think about how this has evolved, this is very, very niche. It's kind of like with koalas have a very specialized hindgut and digestion to deal with deal to deal with eating eucalyptus leaves. Which, if you look up true facts by Z Frank about marsupials, you'll learn lots of interesting things about koalas. But one of them is that one, they only eat eucalyptus leaves, which are highly toxic because the eucalyptus tree has made it very clear it doesn't want to be eaten by anybody. So they have this very advanced evolutionary adaptation to be able to, to eat this stuff, which could have been avoided by really eating anything else. <laughs> yeah. It's like of all the things you could have eaten. But the thing is, it's like, yes, you also have no competition. Yes. Because nothing else is eating, eating this. this. The rust monster, as we said, looks a lot like katydids, grasshoppers, leafhoppers, aphids. And also, I think it's a little bit like a roach. Yeah. So roaches... Which, anybody, you don't like bugs. Here you go. There are different types of wood roaches, cockroaches, so on and so forth. And they are also scavengers. And they'll eat just about anything, though. Mostly detris. So they are in the same family as termites. Mm-hmm. They just eat whatever, you know, detris from broken yeah. down wood dust, dust wood, wood food particles food particles you know you name it they are basically this little garbage disposal yeah they're a cleaning animal yeah a cleaning animal so the thing is about anywhere you're going to find some kind of roach you can even see here with the rust monster and even with some roaches usually like roach males will have wings but females don't or they have very small reduced wings, mm-hmm. or not wings anymore at all. And so this is what we call a vestigial wing, mm-hmm. right? So it's still present, but it doesn't really have a function anymore. For example, humans still have tail bones, yep. but we don't have tails, right? It would be a vestigial structure. And so in this case, it's the, with the rust monster, do they have, did they have the very reduced legs? Did the legs just disappear at all, right? Are some of those bits vestigial now, right, and are no longer used? But, but yeah, so you've got all these, these adaptations to fit their niche. Right. And their niche, you know, and the reason that they're eating iron and is to feed these bacteria, potentially, that are living in their gut, like a cow. Right. And so if you want to think about, so if you had this type of stomach, 
where you have symbiotic bacteria, which we also have symbiotic bacteria in our gut as mm -hmm. well. But for a multi-chambered stomach that goes through several levels of fermentation as well as digestion with different symbiotic bacteria, this is called a ruminant, yes. right? And so what we're saying is a rust monster, a ruminant. And are ruminants impressive in D&D? Are ruminants impressive in D&D? I don't know. Are they? There are bacteria in nature which deal with toxic metals all the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of them live in the deep sea. They will be called haleophilic. So that means that they can deal with high salt concentrations. Okay. We are talking about bacteria, but we are also talking about archaea. Now, most everyone does not know what I'm talking about when I talk about archaea. Um, sorry, everyone. This is my microbiologist self coming out. Bear with me. Archaea... And for the chemistry nerds, before we get into to the biology piece, the reason they are haleophiles is halides, or halides is in alkyl halides salts. Yeah. So that's for the chemistry people like me in the room that are like, mm-hmm, I know some of these biology words. <laughs> <laughs> so deep sea vents. And so this comes from the Smithsonian Ocean Team. You will have these highly exothermic, so very, very hot, releasing, you know, heat, hydrothermal vents, right, which are coming from active volcanic areas. Mm -hmm. And this is very high-powered, like, water and other deep-sea gases. They are released from these small chimneys, which they will also call black smokers. And this is in the very deep sea where there is no sunlight and usually very low oxygen. And so because of that, any life that lives down there has to find a different energy source. And one of the ways that they find these energy sources is from these bacteria. These types of bacteria will use heavy toxic metals. And this includes iron. Mm -hmm. So here comes our iron again. Hydrogen sulfide, there's our sulfuric acid again, so maybe they're double duty. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen gas and different types of ammonia compounds. Yep. And so this is nitrogen and hydrogen and not a lot of carbon. And so they get their energy from using these chemical reactions. And so this is called chemosynthesis. Okay. And so these microbes can release new compounds after using chemosynthesis to get energy. And so some of them are toxic, but then other ones can be used by other microorganisms to live off of. And so around these big vents, you will get these huge communities of different types of animals that have never seen the light of day and never will. Right based off of eating these tiny microscopic organisms. So our thought was, is if you had different types of bacteria or different types of archaea, which archaea are weird. They are single-celled organisms that are bacteria adjacent as well as adjacent to other multicellular organisms. So. For example, all humans and plants and other animals are types of eukaryotes. They have multi, each of their cells has multi, multiple different compartments in them that are separated by membranes versus prokaryotes, which are bacteria, don't. They're just one big sack, right? And so archaea are kind of this weird middle, right, where they're not quite one and they're not quite the other. 
And so but they are archaic, as in archaic, as in very old. Yes, this they, is an ancient form of life. Yes, and a lot of them are highly specialized. And so because of that, they can live in places where, for example, you're at a hydrothermal vent where it is so deep down in the ocean that the pressure keeps the water from boiling. But it should be boiling, right? Like it is that hot. It's and they can several hundred degrees centigrade, as I recall. Yes. It is, this is heat from the inside of the earth. Right. So usually it is somewhere, so this mineral-laden fluid is is either emitted as warm, which is 41 to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, or 5 to 100 degrees centigrade, or you can have plumes of superheated water, which is 250 to 400 degrees centigrade, and 482 to 752 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, a, a decently warm pool, you know. A decently warm pool. <laughs> You know, local retirement community is probably about 600 in the pool. Oh, yeah, exactly. So these <laughs> so these creatures live at the interface between this superheated water, which and is full of toxic metals and acid. And the water and, that should be frozen. And the water that should be frozen because it's at the bottom of the ocean. So, yeah. It is metal AF. <laughs> and, you know, that works on several levels. Levels. <laughs> I uh, win. They are consuming metals. metals. And Anyhow. so, does the rust monster have a bunch of these guys in its gut? Well, and that's the thing. An oxidative reaction is often exothermic. Right. So a creature that thrives on rapidly oxidizing material to eat it to be passed to... Bacteria that live in superheated, you know, or bacteria-adjacent creatures mm -hmm. that live in a superheated environment. Rust monsters should be warm. Like, yeah. very, very warm. Yeah, on the inside and out. Yes. So, you know, a big part of it, you know, if you're making contact with it with metal objects, and that's the, you know, and we talk about, you know, go after them with wooden and stone weapons. That's mm -hmm. because these things are not very thermally conductive, on top yep. of not being something that rapidly excuse me, rapidly oxidizes. So you know, you've got to think about, okay, this is a warm underground creature. It is burrowing through solid earth, consuming minerals. But in reality, it's like, okay, it's only going after these things and then just hanging out. Like they're not threatening to most things. They're only after more food. And in reality, is that not unlike a cow? <laughs> It's the reason, you know, they're considered docile enough to be pets. It's an odd pet, to be sure, but, I mean, certain things in nature are odd pets. I mean, people keep all sorts of exotic animals, whether they, you know, should whether or not. Whether smart or not, yeah. But there are also some, you know, symbiotic relationships. Um, in Asia, you look at things like cormorant fishing. It's mm -hmm. a practice that on the surface looks very strange. You know, we are keeping this wild, otherwise wild animal it has some very odd working conditions. A lot of them have bands around their necks so they don't eat all the fish and then are fat and happy and don't want to work. But they're well-fed, they're well-kept because they're part of people's livelihood. So eh, there's some ethical considerations there, but could you use a rust monster in a similar fashion or a rust beast, a rust creature, if you want to take away the monster moniker? Yes. You know, bring their PR up a little bit. Right. Could you you know, cap their antennae in some way so that they're not dissolving things and sort of muzzle them to keep them from eating your iron tools. 
but use their natural ability to sense metals to seek out richer mines. New, new, seek out new... <laughs> to seek out new, new life and new, new civilizations. civilizations. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Sorry. That, <laughs> could there be a form of, of rust monster mining? You know, where teams are trained to seek out these sources of material wealth and then are rewarded at the end of the day when they have a nice, you know, stone pen or wooden pen, you know, something that kind of keeps them safe but that they're not going to eat their way out of. Mm-hmm. And then to work in concert with, with teams of other creatures. And get the choicest. The choicest. Yeah. Of iron minerals. Yeah, do, do they get, you know... Well, and that's the other thing. When your tools are worn out, do you resharpen them or do you feed them to your rust creatures? Right. And make new tools with the nice iron that they brought you. Awesome. This is true. Because also we could talk a little bit more about the digestion. Besides it's a recycling them, program. Right. Besides them being a ruminant, right, that we've decided. And so back to we're thinking about that they're somewhat insectoid-like. And they are, they do look a bit like a bug. Now, when I talk about a bug, a bug has six legs, but a true bug, right, does not have a chompy chompy mouth. It doesn't have the mandible. Nope. They have a sucky mouth. True bugs suck. Yes. They have what is called. They have a proboscis. A, a proboscis. A proboscis or proboscis? Yes. Yes. I think I've heard both. Um, which is a somewhat like a needle-like protrusion, like a straw, like right? a mosquito, like a mosquito, right? Or like moths and butterflies. Yes, and so that is also true for aphids, which a rust monster in shape-wise looks quite a bit like. Um, but they have mandibles and little bitey bitey. But then we were talking about okay, so once we have our rusted metal object, right? And we're eating and we're metal. eating metal shards of rusty metal. Metal. How do we get this down the craw? Because, you know, back to the cows, their teeth, their, their body is designed for eating grass. grass. It is a grinding, crushing type of tooth. Right. And a carnivorous creature will have long, sharp teeth for, you know, pulling apart meat, pulling apart flesh. We've talked about this in the tooth shroud before. <laughs> but, you know, if you're eating rusty iron chunks, you know, or hunks of sulfur or some other stone as you are working your way towards the iron, you have to have the type of craw zone that will handle that. So the artwork shows some teeth and some mandibles. They have sort of a multi-part mouth, and that makes a certain amount of sense. You have to have some crushing apparatus Mm -hmm. to kind of break down metallic items, especially raw iron. You know, is often very blocky, and and, it's a a rock. Right. You know, rocks are not exactly known for their pleasant texture and mouthfeel. But on top of that, you have to have some way to break this down. So you need a gizzard, a crop. But we thought about the, you know, things like turtles. And turtles will break down their food and kind of keep it moving and keep to keep themselves protected. A lot of, especially ocean turtles, eat jellyfish. Right. Back to this pneumatosis problem and these stinging cells. So... This is where we're going to do the disclaimer on the body horror thing, okay? Yeah, if body horror really Maybe, squicks you yeah, out, no. teeth where they should not be. Teeth where they should not be. Skip over this. All right, because we're going to talk about the turtle craw, and specifically the sea turtle craw, and what we're going, what the term is, esophageal papillae. The inside of the esophagus is full of cardinalaginous, so this is 
you know, not quite bone, right? Like, like your ear like or your, your nose ear, or, you or know, your shark nose, fins. Shark fins, prongs, protrusions, spikies, lining the entirety of the inside of the esophagus. Think of a bony tunnel. Think of, a, think of a long tube. Long tube. Made of meat. Made of meat. That also is filled with teeth. Yes. Horrifying, spongy teeth. That is how the turtle do. Welcome to the craw zone. Welcome to the craw zone. They're soft. It's not okay. No, it is not okay. As I said, you can look it up. Be forewarned ahead of time. All right? So... They use that as a way to protect themselves and to grind up the jellyfish as it goes down the esophagus before it even gets to the stomach. Imagine, if you will, a biological dark disposal. Yes. <laughs> the, the thing at the bottom of the sink, there's an impeller in there, and it, it pushes the food against lots of small holes and crushes it up. Right. It's just an inverted version. It's keeping everything in and crushing it up. Oh, yep. And moving it down. Yes. So there's no reason that the rust monster does not have a similar apparatus that is grinding and crushing and moving and keeping itself protected from all the spiky, spiky bits of the metal that it's eating. With its own spiky, spiky bits. Right. Just on the inside. A sea turtle's esophagus, and this is in le leatherbacks and other turtles, is very long. It goes down its entire body and then loops back up towards the stomach. So this is a long sort of chew... Scary meat tunnel. Imagine a long, journey. dark tooth tunnel. Tooth tunnel. Tooth tunnels are new. Is another band name, maybe. I don't know. The long, dark tooth tunnel. The new album name. <laughs> new album name. There you go. <laughs> Greatest hits. Um. <laughs> so, besides having that, so now we've got that esophagus. If we're going with insects, the insect digestive system includes a crop. After the scary tooth esophagus, which is similar to birds, we've talked about this too. Now we have a fine. So we go down the long scary tooth tunnel. Yes. Into the grinding zone. Oh, in the grind zone, right? Okay, we grind up the with grind dome. small stones. The thunder and, domes. Right. This is now force damage of a very particular kind. Yes. So we the go through the pre stomach. Correct. So now we've moved things with sharp pointy bits, we've ground it up, and then we push it into what? The crop. Well, that's the, that's the grindy bit. Okay, that's the grindy bit. Then we push it into the stomach, which is called the ventriculus okay. in insects, because it's not shaped the same. It is basically we have a foregut, midgut, hindgut. Sort so of like the chambered stomach in like cows. In cows, right. So our foregut was the grindy, grindy <laughs> esophagus. And followed crop. by the crop, right? The grind zone. Now we have gone to the midgut, mm -hmm. which is the stomach where the nasty acids are, and most of the digestion is, which is the ventriculus. After that, we move to the hindgut. Now, the hindgut in insects is very special. It would be like our intestines. And, right. And so that's is where, like, small intestine, large intestine, rectum, you know, all of that in a human. So in insects... It's called the Malpighian tubules. So these are, instead of it just being a long tunnel, a network, basically, that meshes out. So basically, like, one tunnel and then a lot of different little tunnels coming off of it, right? Okay. And little tubules. And so that allows for maximum absorption 
Again, back to the surface area. Surface area thing for maximum absorption of nutrients. And after that, it finally goes at the very, very end so that they're very efficient in the stuff that they take up. So they give off very little waste. And any and waste for they. Rust monster, that makes sense. Right. And any waste they do give off, if they're like an insect, it would be uric acid, right? Or like what we do in urine, right? It's sort of uric acid urethra, unless you're a cockroach. They keep that and they use it as a source of that. nitrogen. And they use that as a source of nitrogen because they have what are called urocysts, which is a special little gland where the uric acid goes with other symbiotic bacteria that help them recycle it. And so, this is the section where the archaea would be living and producing, producing the, the nutrients right. that the rust monster may need. So they would probably be in these tubules somewhere and helping to produce all of those sorts of things. Do they also help produce sulfuric acid and stuff like that and pump it back up? I don't Possible. know. Possible. Right. right. And then finally, it goes out the back end once we're done. But To be shoved away with the, the pushy tail. With the pushy tail, that's right. <laughs> So yeah, I mean that. So you know, again, this is where we came up with the idea of the cow, right? You know, like an insect, you're going to ruminate. There's some fermentation. There's grinding. There's all these processes that are going on. To you know, and, and do they chew cud? Probably not. Probably not. They have a crop for the for the, the grindy, grindy bit. Mm-hmm. But it, it does you know bring up the question of like this is just a, a creature that lives out here. You know, mm-hmm. like, like the bison. This is imagine if you will an underground bison. <laughs> um, much smaller than an underground bug bison um but now we've got to talk about so that we talked about their solitary or in small groups but there's never really any talk about mates there's never really any talk of babies there was a little bit of they maybe have one or two sort of brood which is interesting because you know fourth edition brings up the idea of a swarm of young nymphs like right. a swarm of these things so like a large number so it, it's it's not it's one of the things that is inconsistent. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, this has been pretty much the same, unchanged since the seventies. Yep. You know, this thing has is a terror to all adventuring parties as it eats all of your your ill gotten goods. Um, <laughs> and fourth edition really put some extra effort into can we make these things more terrifying? Because you had the swarm of young, and you also had a giant version called the Dwelmer Eater, mm-hmm. which instead of being a medium creature is now a large creature. And not only does it eat your non-magical items, it, it eats your, your magic, magic items. items too. This is just pump it up. Remember, if you want, if you back to our original, if you want to make a more terrifying, make an awakened version, make a make dire make, version, make a dire version, make it bigger. But you've got this option of, of a swarm of young rust monsters. Which you would think if they're somewhat insect-like, insects tend to have Large numbers. Large numbers of young. Large broods. Large broods. So back to the what we talked about and before, high fecundity. So fecundity is the term of how many babies do you have? If you are a creature that is on the bottom of the food chain, you want to have lots of babies. Or be really, very fast. Now, you want to have lots of babies. High fecundity is lots of babies. True. Really fast. You know, you sexually mature quickly, you've got lots of babies. You don't give a crap what happens to those babies later. You just get over the chances of them all biffing it by just having lots of them. Creatures with low fecundity, like humans, like elephants, like other large mammals, is what they do is they have few young, but they put a lot of energy and investment into raising those young. And keeping them safe. And keeping them safe. 
and getting them to maturity. Versus if you're a turtle, if you're an insect, if you're a fish, you just have buku bunches of them. You take a bunch of eggs and you put them in the hole in the ground. ground and then you just leave. And you just leave. <laughs> and you're like, good luck. <laughs> Eat the eggs into the ground, the ground and walk away. Right. When they talked about having only one or two, this sounds a lot more, and back to the bug thing, this sounds a lot more like aphids. The reason for this is we're going to teach everyone another new word. We're getting lots of new words today, which is called parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis means that you don't need, you are an animal, but you don't need to have sex to have a baby. There are some lizards that do this. Mm -hmm. There are some fish that do this. And aphids do this. Where an aphid will lay an egg. And she doesn't need to breed with anybody. All There are certain species of aphids, and almost I think almost all of them, which there are no males. They're just females. And she lays an egg that is an exact genetic copy of herself. In this case, is a rust monster, like an aphid, where it just clones itself. And that would make a certain amount of sense when you think about that they have looked the same, they all appear the same basic size, the same exact shape, the same color, the same habits. If it was a carbon copy clone of its original, you know, passed down through time, and with also, very minute changes. They tend to be, they said they're solitary, mm -hmm. that it's hard for them necessarily to find food because they're in a very niche place. And so you would only ever undergo, and this happens in nature, parthenogenesis, right? Cloning yourself. When there if, are limited resources. Yes, when there are limited resources because it's hard to find a mate. And it's hard to maintain a big population. But then you would only undergo that reproduction if you found a good place. So you found a nice big vein or a big deposit of iron. Right. You know, a, a lodestone mm -hmm. that would say, here is the place. And you may, in that case, have several you know, rust monsters hanging out because there's plentiful food. And likelihood, they're all genetically the same. So it's one of the reasons that if there's a plant that's covered in aphids, it's usually that they're one aphid started there. And they're like, man, this is a great place. Let's just have all of the beverage. And so now you are boned because you are covered in these things. Now, I know that one other thing that you had mentioned to me before, and this is sort of taking the rust monster, take it out of its underground layer. Maybe shrink it down some. Maybe mm -hmm. adjust it somewhat. And this has been a fairly recent development is the idea of, you know, these things are seeking out metal. And one of the ways we're looking specifically with like toxic metals or with metals that there's not a high abundance of that we want to be able to reuse is phytomining. Yes. So in the real world, we've talked about bacteria, which will use toxic metals. There are no animals we know of that will eat metals, right? So that's why we've had to come up with this very sort of complicated digestive system <laughs> for our rust monster. But there are plants that accumulate metals, and quite a few do. And so these are used for things called phytoremediation. So phyto, now everyone knows where my handle comes from, is Latin for plant. So that's a new thing. We're, we're doing a lot of words today. Now today everyone's- Today's a big word episode. Yep, yeah, today's a big word episode. So phytoremediation is, there are certain plants which can 
live in places where there's toxic metals, right? And nasty toxic metals in the soils and different other stuff like that. Arsenic, isn't it? Arsenic, cyanide, um, other coppers, iron, other types of heavy metals. And And copper is crazy because copper kills a lot of plants. Yes. So most of the time, copper is for plants is usually like what arsenic is for us. Like it will kill it dead. It's exceedingly poisonous. Exceedingly poisonous. But... There are certain plants which have developed the uh, have developed ways to uptake these toxic metals. They put it into specialized tissues or sink tissues, right? And have compartmentalized it off from other places. An example, there are many ferns which do this. There is also cassava. It is a potato adjacent relative. It's a root vegetable. Root vegetable, which will grow in basically anywhere that nothing else will grow, and is used and is used in Africa as a stable food source because it has high starch content. The problem with it is, is because it can grow where anything else can't grow, usually due to toxic metals, is you've got to be very careful to process it, soak it, and do a lot of pre leach those metals. Yeah, pre cooking work so that you don't get yourself poisoned. But there's a thought that we could harvest these metals, metals. from plants. Yes. And so there has been as you as Ethan just mentioned earlier of this type called phyto mining, right? So plant mining. And the idea is is that you've taken certain plants and there's about 700 different types that we know of that will accumulate these metals at to very high concentrations in these sort of toxic places and you can score like the bark some of these are trees some of these are leaves you can score them and extract the metal and so um, I'm going to include these and we'll include all of our sources in the show notes but one of them is that there's this picture here of nickel being removed from the sap of this tree yes in a place in malaysia and so this was an article in the new york times that was actually put out uh just about a month ago from a type of bush that is sort of similar um to has this neon blue green sap because about a quarter of the sap is actually nickel hmm and that is far more concentrated than any ore that we find in nickel smelters. And so this was shown, this was done, work done with Alan Baker, who's a botany professor from the University of Melbourne, has been researching the relationship between plants and soil since the 1970s. And so he had an international team of colleagues set their sights on sort of, instead of sort of a fun thought experiment, is what if, could we mine metal from plants? And so they rented a plot of land in Malaysia, um, on the Malaysian side of the island of Borneo. And every six to 12 months, a farmer shaves off about a foot of growth from these nickel hyperaccumulating plants and then squeezes or burns the metal out. Okay. And farmers could hold in their hands roughly 500 pounds of nickel citrate, which is worth thousands of dollars on the market. And so they're now trying to scale this up from a little tiny trial to about 50 acres for a different industry, um, for their target industry. And so for the next decade, they're hoping that they could use and purify more these base metals as rare, as, as rare metals and could be filled doing a similar kind of farming as to the ones they use for coconuts as well as coffee. 
So you've got this great opportunity to, you know, take what was previously, you know, things like strip mining. Now, in theory, you could plant a toxic metal accumulating mm-hmm. plant species across a field and then just come through and harvest your plants every so often and, and pull your metals out. Right. And eventually, phytoremediation done with ferns and maybe some of these other types of um, plants can actually restore polluted soils. So mm-hmm. things from when you said the like strip mining or other pollutions or something like that, or when you had different issues with um, toxic spills and other stuff of that nature, industrial sorts of things. And so they actually call this smelting trees okay, or smelting plants. And most people just do it in their free time hmm. as sort of a type of hobby. But it goes back to, you know, nature reclaims things. In, in the immortal words of, you know, Jeff Goldblum, life uh, finds, finds a way. way. <laughs> but you got to think about, so, so let's take that, you know, as a, as a project. You know, maybe there is a, you know, in, the, in a D&D context, that maybe there is a group of elves and dwarves that have figured out a similar process. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they came across this forest, and the reason that they found the metal was that there was some kind of rust monster trying to eat a tree, which is very uncharacteristic. Well, if you find out that the tree is full of metal, now it makes a lot more sense. And maybe that's where you've got your, your copper or a, maybe a nickel-colored rust mm-hmm. monster, a bright, shiny, white rust monster in a forest. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to think, oh, that's just the town drunk and he's making up stories. And it's like, no, he's wandered in here rich because he's produced this beautiful white metal from trees. Yep, and there are some new species that have been discovered as well in the Philippines and other places which have very nickel-rich sorts of areas. Mm -hmm. But there are plants that not only do they accumulate nickel, right? As we said before, there's some that can accumulate cyanide, can accumulate arsenic, as well as some which are, if we're looking at electronics, there are some which can accumulate cobalt of Mm -hmm. some types. And so now you're getting into even more rare metals, right? Palladium. Palladium, yeah, in different toxic um, sources. And as I said, you know, there are 700 different species that we know of. And there could be a lot more that we don't. Yes. And it's, yeah, it's the reason that, you know, when you, you specifically mentioned ferns, it's the reason that in medieval times people would eat fiddleheads. And you had to be careful because some of them could very well be toxic because they had taken up things like arsenic. Yep. You would know. you like to explain what fiddlehead is? I would let you explain it because you probably will do a better <laughs> job than I will. But the reason it's called a fiddlehead is it looks like the head of a violin or a fiddle. They were in you know, that sort of curved design. The English term for them is fiddlehead, and it is the mm-hmm. growth portion of ferns and fern-like species like yep. cycads. So it is a young frond, right? So it is when the leaf is first emerging from a fern, a new leaf, it's usually... Twisty, twisty, curled up into like a little... It like a curled tube like the like, head of a fiddle. Yeah, like a little cinnamon roll. But they tend to be very soft and easier to eat and, la- and less sort of stringy like celery or something or like woody. that from like, or woody. And so they're used as a vegetable. But there are certain types of, there are fiddlehead ferns, yes. right? Which are the, which are some of the most common that people will harvest. And you can harvest fiddleheads from other ferns, but you've got to be careful. And the thing is, is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of species of ferns. But ferns had a huge use in yes. medieval times. Yeah, that's the reason you have bracken. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you read it all and you read anything that's got a historical you know, medieval European bent to it, and it mentions bracken. It's a type of fern. 
and it was used to separate um, linen and things, uh, flax that's being preserved for linen, or to keep um, small animals and rodents out of your food. Mm-hmm. Bracken was a great source of that, and I believe, as I recall, it's because the bracken is toxic. Yes. And so, you know, small rodents would eat it and die and say, well, the next rodent that comes along is going to take one look and go, you know, Steve here tried to eat this food and die. I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got this opportunity. And, and it may be, well, that may also be another reason why the Brust Monster is not yep. considered edible. Because yep. it's full is- of toxic elements toxic metals brackens are thought to be carcinogenic so there's another new term for you carcinogenic means cause cancer there you go so yeah so that's a rust monster i mean Mm -hmm. it is a a horrifying tooth adjacent bug adjacent cow adjacent cow adjacent we're calling it the rust adjacent adjacent. there we go But could be used for dealing with pollution. Could, could be, be used for mining. Could, could be, be used, used for... as just a bizarre pet. You can give it to your latest NPC Bond villain, you know. He's petting a rust monster with a leather glove and he releases oh, it on the adventurers. Oh, yeesh. Pet the fronds. Pet the fronds. Good. Danger fronds. Danger fronds. There we go. That's it. That's our new band name, Danger Fronds. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for joining us. <laughs> we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or you have any suggestions of topics that we should cover in the future, please tweet those at us at, at nat20pod or email them to us at natural20podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you would like any of your adventures in your own D&D games about different creatures that you had fun with, please submit those stories to us and we will feature them at the beginning of our next podcast in our creature feature. We would like to thank Embers Tide for our intro and outro music. We would like to thank Burnham with three M's for our beautiful profile and banner artwork. We would also like to thank Shadow Dunn for listening to all of the rough drafts of our podcast. He listens to our mistakes so you don't have to. And, as always, keep rolling a natural 20.